You can sense it when you visit the island of Iona in the Inner Hebrides. There's a saying which says, the earth is thin here, where tissue paper separates the spiritual from the material world. And you feel it, you get it as you step off the boat. Coming up, hear what you can find on the islands that pepper the west coast of Scotland. You can get close to Ireland's dramatic history in its literature and songs. People like William Butler Yeats and other great artistic Irish people brought these legends back to life in poetry and in songs. Irish Guides introduce us to the places and characters of ancient Ireland. And Lori Erickson describes what her family research travels to Norway revealed. When enough time passes, what was once scandalous simply becomes amusing and interesting. Explore ancient Ireland, the Scottish Hebrides, and even the roots to your family tree in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. You can experience my favorite European people, places, and stories in my newest book, For the Love of Europe. Order your copy today at ricksteves.com. Have you started researching your family history after seeing your DNA results? Coming up, a clergywoman from Iowa tells us how it helped her appreciate the struggles and stories of her Viking ancestors. We'll also hear how the sights and tales of ancient Ireland resonate with the Irish today. But our first stop on this hour's travel with Rick Steves is along the timeless west coast of Scotland. In some ways, the traditions of Scotland survive most vividly in its islands off the west coast. These are the Hebrides. We've invited two of our favorite Scottish guides into the studio to share stories and tips on their favorite islands. Liz Lister is from Fife, Colin Mares is from Glasgow, and they're both here with us now to share a little better understanding of Scotland's inner Hebrides. Thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you. Hey, Colin, when you um, think about the Hebrides, we hear that word a lot, Mm. Hebrides. These are the islands off of the west West. of Scotland, but there's inner and outer Hebrides. What's the story there? So the inner Hebrides, they're basically the ones that are closer to mainland Scotland, outer Hebrides, further out. So probably most people going to visit islands off the coast of Scotland will go to the inner Hebrides, they're easier to access. Liz, when you're thinking of the inner Hebrides, which ones are are your favourites and and which one's the most popular with the tourists? Well, Oban, which is on the west coast of Scotland, is known as the Charing Cross of the islands. There's a saying, the earth unto the Lord belongs and all that it contains, except the Kyles and the Western Isles, for these are all McBrains. (laughs) And McBrains, Caledonian McBrains, are the ferry company. So people will come to Oban and that's the jumping off point to go to the islands. So Oban is the Charing Cross. Charing Cross would be the big train station in London That's from right. where you uh, depart to go to different places. So Oban would be the jumping off point. It's the big port on the mainland from where the ferries go. Absolutely. So Kyles, what is Kyles? Kyles are the stretches of water. So the little okay. islands are skerries. So the, so the straits and the, the bays Isles and the and Kyles. The so the so ki- everything is the lords except for the isles and, and the, the waters. Kyles. And that because is the, McBrains have the, they are the major link backwards and forwards to the islands. They carry passengers, they carry freight, they carry tourists. So, so, so this Cal- is the ferry system, mm-hmm. Caledonian McBray, is that That's what it correct. is? correct, yes. Yeah, because Cal- every time I think of an island scene, there's a dramatic ferry coming mm. across it. It's just, it's just a beautiful thing. And you have the jumping off point in the railway terminal at Oban. And so people coming from Glasgow will directly connect with the ferries ah. and go out. So in answer to your question, probably the most too popular are the ones closest. So Mull mm-hmm. and uh, 
Iona we can come back to because yeah. Iona is really accessible as a day or you know, right. for a particular reason. Okay, so you got Mull and you got Iona because those are the first stops on the ferries are, are very close by. Cullen, when you think mm. of the Inner Hebrides, what are mm-hmm. some of the names that uh, come to mind of the islands, the major islands? So you've got Mull and Iona, and you've got uh, Skye, that's probably the most well-known one. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, islands with quite humorous names like Muck, Egg, and Rum. Muck, Egg, and Rum? <laughs> yes. Have you been to any of those islands? Uh, I've not actually, no, but you, <laughs> you see them as you drive towards the, when you're going, when you're going right. by ferry to the island yeah. Sky. Now so. the island that is so famous now and so trendy really is Skye. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you when you think about Sky, mm-hmm. what should a traveller know if they want to visit Sky? Mm. Sky is really popular because it's got a bridge. So some of the people from the other islands of the Hebrides they'll claim that Sky is no longer an island; it's just part of the mainland now. It's linked, but it's very hot just now. Very very popular, and you've got some of the most amazing scenery in all of Scotland, especially it's quite in the accessible. north you of can, the of Sky. You can drive up to viewpoints and mm-hmm. take beautiful hikes. Yeah, go to the far north and see ruined castles. Yeah. Drive by peat bogs. Yes. When yeah. you see a peat bog, what do you think? <laughs> well, I think about whiskey. <laughs> but but uh, peat bogs, that's where uh, people for centuries have um, taken the peat from the ground. And peat is like coal, but a few thousand years younger. And they'll put the peat on the fire to warm the home. And it's also used in the whiskey industry for uh, for drying out the barley. It gives Scotch whiskies the peaty, smoky flavours. So if you want to visit a, a whiskey distillery, they're all over Scotland. Yeah, you've got two on the Isle of Skye and one just right next to Skye on the Isle of Rassie, 25-minute ferry ride. Would they be particularly peaty because this is... Uh, yes, yeah. Well, Talisker is the longest established distillery in Sky mm-hmm. for a long time, the only distillery there. Mm-hmm. And it's a medium peaty whiskey. And I'd like to welcome you aboard the Belle of Mouth, the sailing to Hobbit. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with tour guides Cullen Mares and Elizabeth Lister. And we're talking about the Inner Hebrides Islands in Scotland. And Cindy in Kerry, North Carolina, emailed us. And Cindy writes, we visited the Isle of Skye by renting a car from Inverness and driving there. The driving was quite an experience with not only driving on the left-hand side, but also single-track roads and livestock encounters. It's a place that is really difficult to be on time schedule-wise. You, you have to allow a lot of time for getting around, even if the distance don't look very far on a map. So that's interesting when you're driving. Uh, it is um, handy to have a car for the Isle of Skye. And you can rent one at Inverness. I think the roads are pretty good from Inverness to Skye. Yeah. And then you get on Skye, and what's like? What's yeah. driving on Skye like? Uh, so driving in Skye in some parts, especially when you go north of Portree and around that loop called the Trotternish, uh-huh. you've got a lot of parts that are single track road, and they'll just have uh, passing places. Right. So you've got to kind of understand how they work. It's basically we drive on the left, and so you pull in only to the left. So basically whoever's closest to, if you're coming head to head on a, a sky standoff, right, then great. it's the person who's got the closest space to them on their left, they should pull into that one. Into that le- yeah. so, so there are these little pull-ups, very uh-huh. strategically positioned. And also, because of the pressure of tourism, a lot of the smaller islands, not just sky, but the smaller islands with the single track yeah. roads, they say that they don't drive on the left in Mull, they drive on what's left. Oh, now that's a good way to put it. Liz, when you drive around the islands, you, you're likely to see traditional lifestyles, and you hear people re- referring to a crofter. What, what's a crofter? People think that a croft is the house that's built on the land. A croft is actually a package of land on which the crofter had to build their own house. Now, they were in a terrible situation that if they improved their house, they didn't own the land, they were simply tenants. And so for a long time, if they improved their home, the factor, the manager of the land, could take the home away from them. And so they were basically enslaved. 
Uh. And that led to the Crofting Acts of the 1800s, where people began to get ownership of their land so they could pass it on from generation to generation. So now there's so much red tape that they say that a croft is a package of land wrapped up in red tape. Oh my goodness. So when we think about the Highland Clearances and the Crofters and so on... uh, there, there must be museums that, that let you learn yeah. about that as a traveler. What, what's mm-hmm. one that you would recommend? So on Isle of Skye, in the very far north of the Isle, uh, there's a place called the Museum of Island Life. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a collection of preserved, some of them were real houses that people lived in, croft houses. Other ones have been built just to house more parts of the museum. And so it just shows the traditional way that people lived on the Isle of Skye, the traditional architecture and, and way of life. It's a delightful, intimate little chance to yeah. to go into a home, a stone home with a sod roof and imagine what it was like mm-hmm. on that windy, desolate corner of the British Isles. Yeah, so they're, they're thatched roofs and they're built to fit in with the landscape. They're aerodynamic, really, taking that fierce, so they, fierce winds off the, of, of the they sea. They survive yeah. the wind. Mm-hmm. What are a couple of more uh, things you might see or do uh, while you go to Skye? So one of the other main attractions on Skye is uh, Dunvegan Castle. Uh-huh. So that's over towards the west, uh, near to the town of Dunvegan. And that's the home of uh, the MacLeods. Uh, it's one of the big clans, and they claim to be the longest inhabited, continuously inhabited castle in Scotland, inhabited for over 800 years now. So you took me to a place that has not been continuously inhabited, but mm. is actually quite old. Uh, yeah. Describe that. So it's, and how uh, old is it? So it's known as Dunbeg Broch. It is uh, several thousands of years old. And so going back like Stonehenge time. Yes, yeah, so it's Stonehenge time, so 3,000 years old or so. But you stand on that hilltop and you see all these stones scattered all around and you think those yeah. were all stacked up together and yeah. made a fort? Yeah, and so if you see it or see a picture of it, it was once upon a time five times that height. Uh-huh. Uh, basically a defensive uh, structure where the people could get inside and get safe with their animals and um, it was a lookout point as well, see anyone coming attacking from the sea. Our guides to Scotland's Inner Hebrides are Cullen Mares, who offers custom tours of New Zealand and Australia when he's not leading them in Scotland during the summer, and Liz Lister, who arranges tours of Scotland from her home base in Fife and co-hosts the Scottish Blethers podcast. We have links to their websites and more about Scottish history at ricksteves.com radio. Liz Lister, one of the most famous destinations in the Inner Hebrides, is the uh, enchanting Isle of Iona. What's special about Iona? It is absolutely enchanting. People go there for the peace and tranquility of this beautiful island. As you leave Finnefort, which is the port on uh, Mull, it's a 10-minute ferry journey back in time. There's a community, a religious community on Iona, which was started by a man called George MacLeod. In the 1930s, he lived on the Clyde in Glasgow and he was um, a minister and he wanted to be able to give the opportunity to preach and, and become ministers to young people in the community. But he also saw the terrible unemployment and he wanted to give craftsmen work and apprenticeships. So he brought the two together to restore the abbey on the island of Iona. And still today, on the walls of Iona Abbey, there's a saying which says, The earth is thin here, where tissue paper separates the spiritual from the material world. And you feel it, you get it as you step off the boat. This is a spiritual place that has drawn people right back to the time of St. Columba. St. Columba. And he brought Christianity Christianity. to Scotland. What century would that have been? St. Columba was the 600s, the 7th century. And he was born um, the son of a royal family in Donegal in Ireland. He was raised to become a priest. It was said that he burned like a fierce light that he could bring the word of Christianity to people. But 
The roots aren't clear. It seems that he got himself into trouble. Some say that he went into battle. Some say that he copied the first act of plagiarism. Um, but for whatever reason, he was exiled. And he was told that he had to sail until he could no longer see his beloved Ireland. So he sailed to Collins. He climbed a hill. He could still see Ireland. He sailed on. He landed on Iona, climbed the hill, and he could no longer see Ireland. He travelled with a group of 12 followers who were friends and family. One of them was a man called Oren, his uncle. And Uncle Oren said that he would make a human sacrifice of himself and that he should be buried alive. So they buried Uncle Oren, threw earth over his head and left him for three days. And after three days they dug him up again. Oren sat up and he said that there was no great wonder in heaven and hell wasn't all that it was described as. And so this was totally against the teachings of Christianity. So they shouted, Earth, Earth, or Oren's eyes, lest he blab some more. And this time when they buried him, they didn't dig him up again. I haven't heard that story. Next time I go to Iona, I'll ask a local person about that. He has a chapel. He's got that consolation. You have some Oren's chapel. Mm -hmm. Well, even if you're, regardless of your religion or if you're not even a religious person, when you do go to Iona, there is something special about the atmosphere there, and it's well worth the trip. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the Inner Hebrides of Scotland, and we've been joined by our tour guides, Cullen Mares and Liz Lister. Thanks, both of you, for helping us better understand this beautiful part of Scotland. Thank thanks, you. Rick. On behalf of Caledonia and McBrain, we'd like to thank you for traveling with us today, and we hope you have a pleasant crossing. Thank you. We'll look at Ireland's ancient stories in just a bit. But first, Laurie Erickson tells us how researching her family history in Norway revealed how the spirit of her Viking ancestors influenced who she is today. It's Travel with Rick Steves. She grew up in a passionately Norwegian-American farm town in Iowa, but author Lori Erickson didn't really feel much appreciation for its old country heritage until a DNA test sparked an interest in her family history and in her deep Scandinavian roots. Lori wanted to dig even deeper into her family tree. So, like many of her Viking ancestors, she embarked on a far-ranging quest, minus the pillaging, and she discovered how her soul has been shaped by her ancestors, and she finds unexpected spiritual guides among the seafaring Vikings and her hardscrabble immigrant ancestors. As an Episcopalian deacon, Lori writes about the intersection of travel and spirituality. In her latest book, The Soul of the Family Tree, She explores how genealogy can be a catalyst for unique travel experiences that can nurture your soul and your identity. Lori joins us now from the Iowa Public Radio studios in Iowa City. Welcome, Lori. Well, it's great to be back, Rick. Hey, I was so interested to hear that you grew up in a passionately Norwegian-American Iowa town, and you kind of rolled your eyes at all that Nordic uh, festival stuff, the steaming pots of Romagrot and the old world traditions, and then you changed your feelings about that. Tell me how you how you all of a sudden thought, oh, this is not just kitschy, this is real. Well, I think my experience is actually mirrored by a lot of people that you take for granted what you grow up with, and it's only with the perspective of years and distance and maybe moving away that you have a better sense for the treasures and uh, the depth of, of what you were given when you were growing up. For me, I think an interest in genealogy was sparked as well by losing more and more elderly relatives, Mm. Uh, the sense that your living relatives are dwindling and your relatives on the other side are growing in number. And I started, first of all, to get interested in the genetic part of it. And so, as you said, having a DNA test was important. But then... 
the cultural part really became more interesting to me as well. And just, I'm, I'm Norwegian also, and I, I remember my earliest memories in Norway was visiting relatives who proudly took me out to a very, very traditional place for that steaming bowl of romagrot. So we have these mm. icons <laughs> of our heritage that we don't appreciate when we're younger. But, you know, that's interesting when you say you've got more relatives on the other side as the years go by. And, and you mentioned it is the quintessential hobby of middle age. So we get into middle age and all of a sudden, <laughs> oh yeah, I wish I'd talked more to great grandma before she left us. You know, I had a, a powerful experience when my mother passed away. Uh, I was at her deathbed and, and when she died, it was the most interesting, powerful, sort of primal feeling that uh, she was like on a Viking ship, like a queen, face up, mm. and just sailing away as she, as her soul left. And uh, you write that you might find that your soul has been shaped by your ancestors, and they, that they continue to influence you. I mean, if somebody hasn't had that experience, they might not take it seriously. But it really was a powerful thing. Well, one of the concepts that I play around with in my book is something called the Web of Weird. Weird spelled W-Y-R-D, and it's from uh, an old Norse word, an old Viking word. It's a word that we get our term weird from, but they had a much larger meaning for weird. It had to do with fate or destiny or maybe even a touch of karma. And so the web of weird is this network of connection between the past and the present and the future. And, you know, it has a lot of similarities to a family tree when you think about it. Only the web of weird is, I think, much bigger and much more mystical and has all sorts of spiritual implications that may not be so obvious in a simple family tree. Because a family tree is very, uh, like, two-dimensional, and it's just, you know, there's this, then there's that, then there's this. But are you saying it's like there's more depth to it and there's... Uh The idea in pre-Christian Scandinavia was that when you were born, your fate was decided by the three Norns, who are similar to the the three fates of Greek mythology, and that they would plan out sort of the outlines of your future, but that you were also given, it was called Urlog, and you were given what your ancestors had formed, and that was part of who you would become in your lifetime. And so very much a sense of connection to the past. They also had a deep belief in the power of ancestors to be reborn in family lines. Hmm. The idea that there might be spirits that are associated with a family that would pass from one person to the next, that they could be lent to someone if that person was going off to battle or you know, in, was in need of extra help for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a whole set of rich folklore connected to to ancestors that I found fascinating. You know, you you mentioned that Orlog, and it it seems uh, parallel to the concept of terroir when you're talking about what makes wine special. And it's more than just the grapes. mm -hmm. And and it seems uh, a little woo-woo sometimes, but you get there and you enjoy the wine and you you understand the magic of the the, the love and the generations and and the culture and the heritage that's all worked into that. And you really go, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's something much more, um, you, it's not just a simple recipe. There's a lot to it. And, and maybe that's what shapes our connection with our past and makes that family tree a little more complex. Mm-hmm. Well, and also in my book, I try to expand the concept of genealogy beyond genetics uh, to this idea of cultural transmission 
and also to the the spiritual ancestors that we have. And I think that's a, um, a concept that most people can relate to who are have spiritual inclinations that that you have in a sense spiritual forefathers and foremothers. Uh, you know, it might be uh, Saint Francis, or it might be uh, the Dalai Lama, or Vivekananda in the Hindu tradition. People who have influenced you and who have helped shaped your soul and who are, in a sense, your relatives, your kin. Lori Erickson is a deacon with the Episcopalian Church in Iowa City. She's known for writing about spiritual journeys of many varieties. She's written The Soul of the Family Tree to describe how tracing her genealogy enhanced her spiritual life as she recognized her ancestors' role in shaping who she is today. Her website is laurierickson.net. Lori's also written about end-of-life customs that she's observed in different cultures in Near the Exit. We'll replay her interview on that in late October on Travel with Rick Steves. So, Lori, this is a travel show, and you write about genealogy, and the intersection of genealogy and travel is fascinating to me. How can genealogy be a catalyst for unique travel experiences that you're having in order to nurture your soul and your identity? I mean, your whole book is filled with uh, being on the road. (laughs) Well, I do think that uh, family roots travel is a huge part of the travel market that people aren't as aware of because it goes on sort of underneath the radar uh, because people are traveling not to major tourist attractions generally. They might be traveling to a farm in Alabama or to a village in Sicily or a battlefield in France. And so there are places of individual meaning But I think anyone who has done any genealogical research at all, other than at their computer, realizes the joy of being in a place that is connected to your larger story, Mm -hmm. that there's a kind of visceral jolt that can happen there that is, it's hard to describe, but once you feel it, you know exactly what it is and you want to feel it more in other Mm. places. Yes, and you know, a lot of people are wondering, post-COVID, how are we going to be traveling? Uh, An interesting thing about genealogy travel is it's meaningful travel uh, rather than just bucket list sort of travel. And it gets you away from the crowds, which people are wondering, how can I travel and and just kind of be more peaceful? Genealogy travel is by nature, not touristy. And I think another aspect of that is that during the pandemic, when people were home so much, I think a lot of people were doing more genealogical research. It was something that you could do from the safety of your home. And so I actually think there's going to be a real boom in family roots travel once people really start getting out and about, as you said, graveyards and uh, small towns and places that aren't packed with people but still have a lot of potential meaning. Okay, so now you went to Norway, and I bet you're uh-huh. expert at genealogical travel or genealogy travel. What, where did you go in Norway, and what were you hoping to find? Well, in the course of my book, I, I just chose one set of great-great-grandparents because no one is going to be that interested in all of my many Norwegian relatives. And so I, I chose them at random because I like the sound of their names from my, my family mm-hmm. tree. They sounded very Norwegian. They had lots of those Norwegian vowels in them. But it, it actually was a very serendipitous choice because they turned out to have interesting stories and They were from one of the most beautiful parts of Norway, and they were both baptized in the Borgen Church, which is probably the most beautiful medieval church in Norway. It's uh, one of the stuff. Iconic stave church, I think, isn't it? 
Right, right, mm. with dragon heads on the side and the on the edges of the roofs, and it it's quintessential Norway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I went to their place, and I went to a farm that my uh, great great grandfather Hans had had been a sharecropper. Essentially, he had never owned land; they had never owned land. They were very poor in Norway. And I got the chance to stand there, and I took some. I took a little bit of the soil. My husband laughs that I took probably half the soil from that little plot because <laughs> it was so rocky. And I took the the soil and I brought it back and I put it on their grave, their joint grave in Northeast Iowa, sort of connecting stories. And that was that was mm. really meaningful to do that. Yeah. And I brought my sons along. I brought my sister as well. So it was a real family pilgrimage. And then to follow up on your Viking heritage, you did some traveling in the New World. You went to the coast of Newfoundland, um, a Viking settlement. Yes. Yeah. Well, tell us mm-hmm. about that. Well, my name is Lori Erickson, and for my entire life, I have always said that I am a descendant of the explorer, the Norse explorer Leif Erikson, who was the first European to live in North America, in Canada, in a colony that it was called Vinland, but it was later discovered that in Newfoundland as Lanza Meadows is the name of it. And so I went to stand in the footsteps of Leif Erikson, even though I have to admit that the thousand years between us probably means that it's going to be awfully hard for me to to trace my direct descent from Leif Erikson. But I have been fascinated by the Vikings and to be able to go to that windswept remote spot on the very, very edge of the continent and see uh, the artifacts, some of the artifacts that were left behind to see the recreations of the the 11th century Norse buildings was tremendously meaningful, even though mm-hmm. it was family in that larger sense. We're exploring how genealogy can be a tool for travel and self-discovery right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Lori Erickson is our guest. Her latest book, The Soul of the Family Tree, seeks to show us what's so interesting about our about our forgotten relatives, basically. Lori's also explored end-of-life traditions around the world in her earlier book. It's called Near the Exit. And Global Spiritual Connections is her topic of her book called Holy Rover. Lori, it's so nice to have you. And, you know, um, DNA testing has been hugely popular lately. You wrote it's kind of the, the lazy person's entry into genealogy. What do you think about <laughs> DNA testing as, as a way to, to help empower your quest? I think people have two opinions of it. I have a number of friends who, who have said that they would never have it done. They're concerned about privacy issues. And, and I think that's, you know, that's a legitimate concern. But I also think that it can be a tremendous uh, tool for self-discovery and also connections mm-hmm. with other family members. You know, once you have that done, you can choose whether you want to have, be connected to other family trees. Mm-hmm. And I also think that it it's a good thing. It reminds people of how we're interconnected and how you may think you're English, but you're actually Polish or mm. that the mixing in your ancestral pot was much <laughs> more, more of a stew than you realized. And, and I think there are, are interesting surprises waiting for people if they choose to do their DNA. You know, that was a kind of a jolt for me. I just assumed I was whole Norwegian and I got my DNA and I, I realized, oh, no, I got a little bit of Spanish in me. Well, that's cool. <laughs> but I oh, didn't. You never huh. would have thought that. It's, a, it's kind of a, a little reality test of, as you said, 
what we share is so much greater than than what separates us, and we are that mm-hmm. wonderful mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would imagine it is a little risky. In fact, I just met a man, believe it or not, a couple of weeks ago, and he got his DNA testing, and he discovered he had a child, and he actually met a son of his that he didn't, he didn't even know he had. And I thought, whoa, you could get yourself wow. in big trouble by going for, yeah. for a DNA test. Of course, that's a, an immediate thing, but as we dig deeper into our family trees and put that all together, we do stumble onto some some dark parts of our past. Your, your husband would even joke with you, as you wrote about in the book, that every time uh, you go to another uh, community, you go, oh, there's another place our relatives attacked because of the <laughs> pillaging and plundering of the Vikings. Uh, That's right. But um, I think there's a little bit of a, what do you call it, a statue of limitations on bad relatives <laughs> when they're eight generations ago. Why would anybody be upset about we that? <laughs> well, that's one of the things I write about in my book is how genealogy through a lot of history has been about trying to claim connections to to important people but i think one of the things that's happened to genealogy within the last couple of decades is is this interest in finding colorful characters. Um, so there are genealogical societies, for example, for descendants of the illegitimate sons and daughters of the English kings and queens, for example, or descendants of people who were tried and convicted of witchcraft mm-hmm. in New England in the 17th century. Um, my husband brags about the fact he had a relative who was who was hanged for being a horse thief in, mm-hmm. in Wyoming. <laughs> When enough time passes, what was once scandalous simply becomes amusing and interesting. Yeah, I have a friend of mine who's kind of digging into my family tree. It's her hobby, and she was worried that I'd be upset because she found somebody who was not a very nice guy several generations ago. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, I think mm-hmm. it is. It's kind of fascinating. You write also about spiritual DNA, um, the idea of when you dig deep in a certain way, you can find spiritual DNA. What does that mean? Well, it relates to what I was saying about recognizing your spiritual kin and the influences that have shaped you. But I think, too, I I was very taken by this Norse idea that your ancestors can influence you and that they are wanting to connect with you. And that's that's a a very cross-cultural concept. A lot of different Mm -hmm. cultures around the world have had that belief. And so I think that, you know, part of it is realizing you're not so alone, that even if maybe you don't have a large immediate family, you still have these people in a sense standing behind you. And and these were people who really almost certainly went through very, very hard times. And in learning about their stories, I think it can give you additional strength to get through your own trials. So I think genealogy in general is an argument against extreme individualism, Mm, uh, the sense that we create ourselves and everything is just due to us. Instead, we really Mm -hmm. are the product of a lot of different forces. In fact, you write, as we ponder our family tree, some humility is required. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Lori Erickson, and her book is The Soul of the Family Tree. And Lori, I'd just like to close with with just um, your comment on a thought. You wrote about being perched on the branch of a family tree, gazing upwards, peering downwards, marveling at the tragedies and the triumphs that we see all around us. Take us up into that tree just for a moment and and, uh, share kind of the the value of, of actually climbing that tree and looking up and down. I think since doing the research and writing my book, I really do have a different sense for myself. And I think, it again, it has to do with this sense of not just being an individual 
And it, I think it has to do with this web of weird idea, the sense of the, all the threads of connection that unite me to my ancestors, to my distant, distant ancestors, the Vikings, to people who have an interest in contemporary Norwegian culture, to people who have an interest in genealogy. I mean, there, there are connections that unite us in all sorts of ways. And I think it's good to be reminded of that in a time when there's just, you know, there's a lot of division and a lot of conflict. And really, we are all part of the same family. Uh, we are all part of the, the human family tree. You know, that is so fundamental to the value of travel. And it's been so fun talking to you about genealogy as a kind of travel, really. And, and I, I guess I can say when it comes to genealogy, we can also wish people happy travels. Lori, thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me, Rick. Lori Erickson tells us about learning to read Scandinavian runestones in an extra to today's interview. It's posted at ricksteves.com slash radio. The equinox was important to ancient Celts as they observed the cycles of the sun. Friends from Ireland share legends and traditions that put them in touch with their ancestors. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-RICK. The Irish argue that their island's mythology is as interesting as that of ancient Greece or Rome. The oral traditions of the ancient Celts and the scribes of the Middle Ages provide a fertile landscape for understanding Ireland from the perspective of its Celtic roots. We've invited a couple of Irish guides, Stephen McPhillamy and Joe Darcy, into our studio to share their favorite legends and myths of Ireland and the places you can visit on the island they call home. Joe and Stephen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. It is a big part of going to Ireland, this vivid folk culture, mythology, and, and so on. Stephen, Ireland is rich in legends. Tell us an example of one that you like. My favorite is Cú Cullen. He was the greatest Celtic warrior of them all. Any visitor who goes to Dublin will go to O'Connell Street and they have the general post office there where the 1916 rebellion happened. There's a beautiful bronze statue of this glorious Celtic warrior, the epitome of Celtic Irish manhood. But he's dying and there's a black raven on his shoulder and he's got a sword in one hand and the raven is there because his father was the Celtic god of the sky who was coming to earth in the form of a raven. And when he was young, he was called Satanta, and he killed a, the most ferocious Irish wolfhound. One day he played hurling the ancient Irish game that the Celts played and the wolfhound attacked him and he killed this wolfhound with, by hitting a round little ball like a baseball and stuck it in his throat. The hound's owner was called Cullen and Cullen came out and said, you've killed my dog, my guardian, my ferocious hound. Who's going to guard me now? And young chivalrous Satanta said, I shall guard you for the rest of your life and I shall be called Coo Cullen, which means the hound of Cullen. Whoa. See, now, I've walked by that many times, and I've never really appreciated it. It sort of enlivens your experience when you know the stories. Did you learn that in school? Did your parents teach it to you? Did you read a book? How would you know these kind of legends? Yes, I learned it in school. But in the 1800s, we had this Celtic revival, yeah. and uh, people like William Butler Yeats and other great artistic Irish people brought these legends back to life in poetry and in songs. So we learn about them in school, but we also hear about them in poems and songs oh, so all the time. about it. So it comes up in your music. All the time, yeah. And right. also in our art. Joe, that was fun to hear Stephen's yeah. myth. Can I add just a bit? The whole Cúcullan saga is called the Ulster Cycle. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite parts of the Ulster Cycle is the men of Ulster were gathered at uh, their big games. And the king of Ulster boasted loudly that his two horses could outrun anything in the kingdom. And one drunken minor chief close by said, my wife could run faster than those. So the king 
made him prove it and his life would be forfeit if the woman didn't win the race. Fortunately for this man, he was married to a woman with a little bit of magic and she won the race, but she was also forced to run naked and she was heavily pregnant. And when she collapsed over the line, having beaten the two horses and saved her husband's life, she gave birth to twins, who then went on to have legends of their own. But a goddess named Maka was looking down and she was not happy with this treatment of a pregnant woman. So she called a curse on the men of Ulster. And the curse was that every year for a foreseeable future, for three or four days in a particular month, the men of Ulster would be confined to bed with the pangs of childbirth. So I always get a great reaction from the women on the coach. <laughs> I, I would bet. But I was just amazed that you guys both know both of these legends. And that right there is just scratching the surface of what mm. you guys know. It's a deep appreciation of the history and the heritage and the mythology. And it goes way back. So you do need to have kind of an understanding. First of all, how far back do those stories go? It's impossible to tell because they were only handed down in an oral tradition. We, one of the a very influential people in Celtic or Gaelic society was the storyteller, the bard. Before uh, Christianity arrived in Ireland, we had no written language in right. Ireland. So the uh-huh. stories were not written down until the 6th, 7th and 8th century. And then they were written by monks, sometimes with a little bit of embellishment to make it all appear Christian, sometimes right. not, you know. But. Right. Yeah, the fact that they weren't Christian obviously dates it a bit that they were 2,000 years right. ago. And in the stories, you see, it talks about the types of weapons they used. So there's some bits of contemporary evidence there that would put this to around 500 BC. 500 BC. Now, give or take. Now, Stephen, when we go back to 500 BC, we have all this movement to the peoples. And just very briefly, give us sort of an overview. You've got Angles, Saxons, and Celts. And then you got Normans and Vikings. Yes. So just kind of define how all that mixes together. Yes. Important to say, though, that the British Isles, or the British and Irish Isles, at this time that we're talking about, when Cúchulain was running around, were all Celtic generally. See, that's fundamental. It was all Celtic. And then what happens? The Celts had an empire that stretched from Croatia and northern Italy all the way through France, down into Spain and up into Britain and Ireland. But they didn't have any common king. or We were, right. we were a cultural empire. There was no political empire. Because so Galicia in Spain and Brittany and France, they're also Celtic. Celtic exactly. Okay. Okay. So the Romans went to war with the Celts, which Celt comes from Celtoi, which is Greek for uh, dirty, smelly barbarian or something to that effect. Right. And they, they, uh, they started crushing us and sending us into the fringes, like up into Brittany, up into Galicia that you just said. And then when they conquered Scotland. into Scotland and Wales and also Cornwall in the south of oh, England. yeah. And they never came to Ireland, the Romans, so the Celtic culture lived on there, whereas in the rest of the countries it became more a fringe culture. So the the Romans and and later, what are the Angles and the Saxons then? Uh, They were the Germanic tribes who came into Britain after the Romans were... were, were So the Romans pushed the Celts, and then the Angles and the Saxons took that land that the Romans were running after Rome fell. Yes, the Celts don't have a connection uh, to the Romans or to the Angles and the Saxons who are Germanic. So the Angles came over and made Angle land, England. Yes, now then you got the Normans and you got the Vikings. The Vikings came first and then the Normans. Yes, and the Normans, of course, are descended from the Vikings who came from Scandinavia down into northern France. Okay, so really it's that movement from people up in the north that came and they were just warrior tribes and they yes. would terrorize and, and, and settle different areas. So all that works together. And today, when we want to travel around Ireland, let's just talk about some of the sites you might see. Joe, if you're driving around Ireland, you want to see different kinds of mysterious sites, Stonehenge age sites, sites that go back to these days. Pre-Stonehenge, yeah. We have some remarkable Neolithic 
monuments in Ireland, the most famous of them would be Newgrange. It's only uh, less than an hour's drive north of Dublin. And then, and then we, we know about stone circles in England, in Ireland. Uh, we have lots of stone circles. Uh, I know of one just a small stone circle. We know nothing about it other than mm-hmm. it's there outside uh, the town of Kenmare. Well, and when you when you travel around Dingle Peninsula, for example, one of our favourite places in the southwest of Ireland, it's like an open-air archaeological museum. Everywhere you look, there's these mysterious stone structures that date back to, um, you know, over a thousand years ago. And, and Celtic crosses, to me, are just very evocative. The Celtic cross, that's uh, the early Christians in Ireland, they used the mythology that was already there and the worship systems that were already there, and they incorporated them into Christianity. And the Celtic cross incorporates the sun, a circle, mm. into the crucifix. And that's Is that a way possible. to make pagan people a little more comfortable with the yep, new religion? to incorporate their, yeah. not necessarily worship of the sun, but their belief that the sun yeah. provides everything that's good and bad. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Celtic and ancient Ireland. Our guides are Joe Darcy and Stephen McPhillamy. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Brent is on the phone from Columbus in Ohio. Brent, thanks for calling. Hi, everyone. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Hi, Brent. How's your uh, experience in Ireland when it comes to, uh, you know, mysterious bits of the past? Well, I'm actually planning a trip to Scotland and Ireland coming up, and I've read so much about the fairy forts and fairy mounds and some of the fairy gardens, and I'm really interested in where I might be able to best experience or see some of that, and how do I respectfully bring that up as a topic, because I understand there might be some a little bit of some superstition around that and how I bring it up might be uh, kind of important. Stephen, any thoughts for Brent? Brent, it's good that you've asked the question because there is a little bit of sensitivity around it. There's people that you would say, can you show us where the ferry fort is? And everybody will know where the ferry fort is, but not everybody will believe in it. But we do have a lot of respect for it. So it's good that you're going to be sensitive about it. People will embrace you too. And there's people in every parish, every village in Ireland who'll be happy to take you to the ferry fort and share the legends with you, but also tell you the doom that awaits, dare you upset the ferry fort. Because you took me to a place, Stephen, in, in Dingo, where the road was straight and then it actually went around the ferry fort. It could have continued to go straight, but you didn't want to disturb it. That's right, yeah. And you see that popping up everywhere, people changing road directions and not, not wanting to cut down hawthorn trees in the middle of a field and certainly not wanting to damage a stone throw. So, so Brent should say when he's talking to his Irish friend, excuse me, is there a, I mean, <laughs> is it okay to ask for a ferry fort? I would just simply say, can you sh- direct me to the nearest ferry fort? <laughs> in the legends of Ireland, Brent, there was a people who lived in Ireland maybe 4,000 years ago and in Irish folklore, they're known as the Tuatha Danu, the people of the tribe of Danu and they were a magical people and they controlled the land and then uh, Ireland was invaded by the Milesians despite their magic the two of Danu were defeated and agreed to settle Ireland between the two of them the Milesians they got all the land above the earth and the two of Danu were banished beneath the earth oh there you go and the Milesians thought they had the best of the deal until they discovered if they didn't pay homage to the people who were below the ground then their crops would be destroyed so, so Brent, be careful as you travel around <laughs> Ireland. Thanks for your call. <laughs> Thank you. We're celebrating the mysteries of ancient Ireland on Travel with Rick Steves with Joe Darcy. He provides custom walking tours of his home base in Dublin. And tour guide Stephen McPhillamy also operates a bed and breakfast on the harbour in Dingle. Websites to our guests are included with each week's show notes at ricksteves.com radio.
Celtic crosses, to me, are just very evocative. We actually find those in some Dark Age monasteries and so on. Um, I wouldn't call them Dark Age monasteries because... Uh, Europe was in the Dark Ages. Europe Ireland was in the Dark Ages. Ireland, Ireland was not. Christianity was flourishing in Ireland in the 6th and 7th and 8th century. So that was called the Age of Saints and Scholars. Yeah, the Island of Saints and Scholars, yeah. How, how was it that Ireland was the Island of Saints and Scholars? I think it's because we hadn't been affected by the Roman Empire. Christianity was new to Ireland in the 5th century. Mm-hmm. And how or why St. Patrick and his fellow missionaries had got such a grip on the Irish psyche. But the Irish people became Christians in the 6th, 7th century and they became the most Christian country in Europe. The Dark Ages in Europe is when Christianity had taken a hit mm-hmm. after the collapse of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And after the, after the Roman Empire fell, Irish monks then went back over to Switzerland and Ro- uh, to Italy and set up monasteries and began to teach people things that they had forgotten after they were, you know, crushed by the Germanic tribes. So, so they, they brought opened, it back. They brought back civilization. There's a great book called How the Irish Saved Civilization. We always say a very modest title. But they came back into Europe and brought light back into the dark ages of Europe. Not to say that Europe was completely in darkness, but if you grow up in Ireland, you're led to believe that we re-enlightened Europe again. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Celtic, ancient, mysterious Ireland. Our guides are Stephen McPhillamy and Joe Darcy. I'd love to finish our our conversation with just one place you particularly enjoy taking people to, to give them an appreciation of Ireland's distant and misty past. Joe Darcy. For me, it would have to be Newgrange, a 5,200-year-old monument just about 30 miles north of Dublin. And it was built by a Neolithic people. And these would have been around the time of the Tuatha Dé that I was talking about. It's a monument to honour the dead. And it's built in such a way that as the sun rises on the 21st of December, the winter solstice, the sun's rays penetrate a 55-foot-long chamber and light up the inner chamber. So wait a minute, this is a, a stone circle with a dome over it, like a sod-covered dome, is that right? Yeah. And then it's got one passage going to the middle. Yeah, but we're talking something that's 200 feet across here and 200,000 tons of material. And, and it's in darkness all year long. All year long, yeah. Until that one moment. When the sun's rays penetrate along the passageway, light it up, the sun continues to rise, the sun's rays disappear again, and that's it for the year. It happens on the day before, the day after, to a certain extent. Okay. But I never, ever get tired of going into Newgrange. Yeah. And every time I go in, it wrecks my head. How could they possibly design this 5,000 years ago? There's no way we can really appreciate those civilizations. Stephen McPhillamy. My favorite ancient site in Ireland is in the northwest. It's in Donegal and it's called Greenan Aliak. So it basically means the worshipping place of the sun. It's a circular ring fort. It's up on top of what we call a mountain, but, you know, maybe 1,000 feet hill. And it's uh, got a diameter of about 50 feet And then the wall is probably 20 feet tall. And I love this site because it's a 2,000-year-old ring fort. The ancient kings of Ulster used to be crowned here. And then they would stand and look over everything Mm. that they possessed. And I also love it because it was built at a time when there was no borders in Ireland. It was just tribes and ancient clans. We didn't even feel Irish then. We felt our clan, your loyalty was to your clan and to your locality. So I, I like it because I'm from up there. But it's a pretty impressive site and I think a lot of people going up that direction would love to take the effort and drive up to the top of the hill and there won't be any big crowds up there. That's for sure. It's called Green on Aliak. 
But clearly, the more you know about what you can see and the better planned you are when you go to Ireland, the more you'll get out of your visit. Be great. Stephen McPhillamy, Joe Darcy, thanks so much for sharing an appreciation of the mystic past of Ireland and how we can incorporate it into our travels today. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Rick. A few years ago, when Sarah McCormick was a producer on our show, she took a family history trip to Ireland to get acquainted with the land of some of her ancestors. Right away, she found that a love of music was a big part of the friendship she made, and it got her in touch with her own Irish roots. It's my first night in Ireland. I visit a place called the Dawson Lounge, which bills itself as Dublin's smallest pub. And it feels like it. It's not much bigger than my college dorm room. It's late in the evening, and a group of very happy people at one of the bar's two tables invites me to join them. They're a group of tourists like me, Americans and Australians, plus some local girls. And instead of talking, we just... Sing. The Guinness probably has something to do with this. But there's a lot of beer in the U.S., too, and I've never walked into a sing-along like this at a bar back home. In the town of Westport, in County Mayo, my Irish friend takes me to a pub to hear a man he claims is an encyclopedia of Irish songs. The man's in his 80s, and he sings without accompaniment, sitting on a stool in the back of a crowded pub. He's surrounded by delighted tourists, and a group of young local boys I would have expected would be spending their Saturday night hanging out in a nightclub, not with a man their grandfather's age. But they listen respectfully to each song he sings, and try to stump him by coming up with requests for one he doesn't know. They can't. So now me bicycle warning, stay single while you may, for if you wed you'll be a slave until your dying day. And the lady with the lovely face and smile so warm and grand, she's probably a devil too, like my old Mary. <laughs> Irish people generally know lots of songs. Or they pretend they do. That's Liam O'Reardon. He's a singer from County Cork and a popular local performer in the town of Kinsale. When the pub fills with tourists, he teaches us the words to some popular Irish songs. Here we go, come on. A lot of our history is, is in our songs. So they either, you know, remember a battle or... The famine or immigration. As we stumble through the lyrics, the locals in the pub join in, or at least mouth the words while tapping their toes, like they can't help themselves. The lawyers, women, when they're doing their work, would sing. You just listen and hear things, and you just pick up the songs that way. From a pub somewhere in Ireland, where I'm singing very badly but enjoying every minute of it. This is Sarah McCormick for Travel with Rick Steves.
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com.